0: Fundamentally, the consumer understanding is where it starts. Do you know who you're trying to target? What they're motivated by? What role your brand plays in their life? And how to engage and drive emotional relevance with them is still the core of what we do.
1: This is the podcast where we go around the globe to interview marketing leaders from the world's biggest brands, fastest growing companies, and most disruptive startups. Great ideas, packaged a certain way, want to spread. They want to be told to someone else. This is simple, surprising, and significant. The key to unlocking viral creativity is to make it rapidly scalable. This is Top CMO with me, Ben Kaplan. Today I'm chatting with Margaret Jobling, the CMO of NatWest Group, one of the top three largest banks in the UK. Margaret's marketing background is a who's who of British business. At Centrica, a massive British energy company, she served as the group chief marketing officer. At Cadbury Dairy Milk, Margaret was responsible for driving the marketing strategy at one of the world's most iconic chocolate brands.
0: Cadbury Dairy Milk, made with a glass and a half of fresh British and Irish milk. At
1: Unilever, she played an instrumental role as the global brand director for the Male Grooming Business Unit, shaping the company's global strategy in this critical segment. So how does Margaret apply her marketing acumen to the regulated and conservative financial services sector? And how does she get her team to compress production timelines from two months to just two weeks? Let's find out with Margaret Jobling. Margaret, one of the things I know you've mentioned is that the world is changing so much that it's all new chartered territory. How do you even approach that as a CMO if yesterday does not equal today and today does not equal tomorrow?
0: great question i guess you know and i've said uh, the world is moving so quickly and i think you know the way we look at it is we need to be clear about where we want to get to so we obviously have clear business strategy marketing marketing strategy underpins where we're trying to get to from a business perspective but i think what i've seen in the last two three years is planning actually can only get you so far because things are moving so quickly so we've done a couple of things. One, we, we moved Agile, so we said actually we're going to bring cross-functional teams together and we're going to operate on cycles, so 12 weeks. So we plan 12 weeks, but within that we get clear about we're going to pivot. And we have got a much better clock speed now and a monitor of what's going on externally, because what we've also seen is what happens in eight, nine, ten months' time, who knows? So actually what you need to be doing is be agile about the investment, be able to move money quickly, to test and learn. And the only way you're really gonna be able to move fast is if you basically build optionality into your planning. So we've spent a lot of time looking at, you know, how do we organize our internal resources to give us the best chance of basically moving at the speed of life, which is what's happening with our customers.
1: And to use a very current example, we've recently had news of threat to contagion and confidence in the banking industry, which really gets its start in the U.S. with unbelievably rapid fall of Silicon Valley Bank, which was the very large bank and the second largest bank that to happen in the U.S. It starts spreading, people are worried about across the U.S. and potentially over the world as a crisis of consumer confidence. So how does in your 12-week agile model and optionality, I'm assuming you didn't plan for that specific option. But how does that impact and enter that cycle that's different than if you were on an annual planning cycle?
0: So daily, I mean, we would be having, well, did have, do have, still having, because obviously that's carried on the demise of banks. So we would have daily calls. On that daily call, we'd be looking at, is there any exposure? And what's our customer inbound? What's happening to sentiment? You know, is there anything we need to be doing to both reassure our people, but also our customers? So essentially, we would be monitoring that and then making decisions around do we need to send out customer? You know, it's all okay, don't worry. Communication through to do we need to be talking about liquidity with our big customers to make sure that they know we're well capitalized? So, you basically, your cadence once you move agile is literally daily. So on those daily sessions, we would be agreeing at what point we potentially make some different choices around whatever communication was going out with whatever stakeholder group. But it allows you to pivot literally within 24 hours.
1: It sounds like to me, I mean, from my PR world, when you're dealing with a crisis communications, you would go into sort of a rapid cadence, you would have to do it. This wasn't your crisis. This is somebody else. But it's in this agile model, you're looking at it closely because you just have to know if a course correction is needed quickly, right? You're almost going into a pseudo crisis mode, even though it's not your crisis.
0: Correct. You would run. I mean, it's precautionary. But in the cadence we've got already, you can play straight through into our existing cadence to make sure that there is no issue. And if there is, we can respond really quickly. And the daily cadence, I think what I've found moving agile is it really gives you transparency of what people are working on. So, you know, you, you are literally by the day going, you know, what's on the stack for today? Any help needed? Any blockers required? So you can pivot very quickly into what potentially is more of a crisis or a precautionary crisis mindset.
1: And did you adjust in this sort of agile way any of the advertising spend as a result, meaning like, hey, we don't need to go out and do this other thing in some ways doesn't ladder back to trust, liquidity, you can count on us, all these key messages if there's this sort of contagious spread. Did you you cut anything that if you were on an annual plan, you you wouldn't have cut or no? Did you keep everything as it was?
0: No, we've just stayed the course. I mean, I think what we've seen is Yes, we need to be really conscious of what's going on in the world and any potential read across. But you know the best thing we can do right now is to talk about the things we're doing that are brilliant for our customers. You know, it could have been very different, and we would have obviously course corrected if needed to be. You know, which is what exactly what happened during COVID. Totally changed the comms plan. Totally changed what you were talking about, and had to really pivot very quickly into how do you practically help customers. So I think, you know, in today's world, the biggest thing you can do is stay really close to the people that matter, who are the people that you serve, who are ultimately are your customers.
1: When did you sort of shift to this agile marketing model? Was that an outgrowth of COVID itself? Did that cause you to, or was this before that? Take me through this series of unprecedented things, and I'm curious if that led you to this faster-moving model.
0: is it cause and effect? I think what I saw in lockdown was as soon as we went into lockdown, you know, actually, what that did was push down decision making, enable cross functional teams, and the business moved way faster. So I think it was definitely a catalyst to say there is a very different way of working. Hierarchy went, you know, actually, in fact, I think there was a, a very different approach to sign off and regulation. And, and a lot of the stuff that actually got in the way of us doing business with speed disappeared because we had to. And the first phase during that, when we went and remember back then, went into lockdown was you had to keep the business running. So we had, to, well, we had to get the business up and running because suddenly everybody was catapulted into the far winds, into their home base, and therefore, if, yeah, get, how do people get technology and get connected? And what do we do with the branches? And how do we answer customer queries? And, I mean, there was a lot of you know, had, you had to empower the business, and I think one of the big concerns as we were coming through and out that was we don't want to lose that agility. We actually really want to retain the speed and the decision-making and the empowering of our people. So actually during lockdown, one of the things we talked about was how do we then maintain that agility and move the business to a very different way of working? So it was during lockdown that we pivoted.
1: When all of us went on lockdown for the pandemic, it created dramatic shifts in what was expected of our business culture. A lot of people may want to continue working from home once the pandemic ends. My office is in my car, my home, in my kitchen. In the aftermath, some companies went back to business as usual. In others, like NatWest Group, Margaret tried to harness the faster responsiveness from the pandemic and keep it within her marketing team. Simply put, she thought the pandemic was an opportunity to get her team to think and act more quickly. What it practically mean and there's other CMOs listening saying, gosh, I thought I had to do the annual planning cycle. That was the only thing I could do. Now I'm hearing we could do 12 weeks. What does that mean practically? What happens if today's day one, 12 weeks from now, we got to do this again. And what does it look like and why 12 weeks? Why not 90 days? That's a quarter. Why not six months to get a bit more time? Just take us through the decision making on that because I think other CMOs would be interested.
0: Yeah, I mean, we adopted what is the typical agile cadence. They bet I would say is it doesn't get you away from annual planning. You still start with a, because we are running you know, a big multinational business where we need to be putting our hands up and saying we need this much money and these are the business priorities and So what we we do at the beginning of the year is go, what are the OKRs we're trying to achieve over the course of the 12 months? And then we basically break those down into 12-week cycles. So of those 12-week cycles, we then got two-week sprints. That's it within them. And over the course of those 12 weeks, we'll go, okay, if we want to get to, you know, Whatever mortgage sign-offs by the end of the year. What realistically do we need to do in the next 12 weeks to build those plans? And then we're constantly at the end of the 12 weeks checking, course correcting, you know, adjusting and moving around whatever's required, whether that's money, resources, um, or you know, the business priorities have moved on. So we'll be then re looking at are those uh, okay? Are still relevant? but the okrs for the function ladder and are totally interlocked with the business objectives and key results so we essentially flow top to bottom if this is what we're trying to achieve as a business what is that what's what's that marketing's take on that And then how do we break it down into cycles? The cycles,
1: what's interesting about it is this sounds new and different in the marketing space. But if someone's listening who's ever worked in a product space or an engineering space, it's very normal. They're like, I'm used to doing two-week sprints. I'm used to doing all these things. So was it difficult to get buy-in in in the marketing team or no? Because I I think certain divisions, it's just not marketing, are used to working this way.
0: I think there was a spectrum. So there was people who had already worked this way and absolutely embraced it through to people who would, and they would describe it as I'm um, stood at the end of a cliff and you're saying jump and trust me, it'll be okay. And then when they jump, they said, the analogy one used was it felt like I was in a washing machine. I was, I was getting spun around and around and around. And, you know, we did a couple of things. We were very thoughtful around which bits of the function can't go agile because of the nature of the beast. So mandatory, for example, we took out of the work and said we'd run a separate team for mandatory because it's got a different set of requirements and therefore it's much harder. doesn't mean they can't adapt and adapt some of the ceremonies and the ways of working. And we interlocked our cross-functional teams and pulled in people from other parts of the business, like data and analytics would sit in there. We work and are still working progress on how do we take the agency end-to-end because I think the people who struggled hardest actually were our agencies, creative agency, media agency. So, you know, we've been testing putting creatives in the scrums because that will accelerate our ability to do creative content and self-serve and improve the speed. But they found that particularly challenging.
1: We're a global marketing agency too, part of why people hire us is we've had a model and a system that's refined over time. There's efficiencies. We know how to work. We're supposed to be able to generate, whether it's creative or planning or buying or other things, more efficiently and effectively than you can because we're specialists in this. But then you're also looking at, this isn't their model to do it in this way. We need you to work in our model. And so how did you try to do that? Or did you have to change agencies? Did you have to have ones that were more performance marketing mindset? This is a little bit more of a performance marketing mindset than a, sort of set-it-and-forget-it annual planning mindset?
0: So we're still evolving it, if I'm honest, Ben. I think we're tr- we've tried. So what the, the approach at the moment is to take different sc- scrums and try different models. So let's try a model where we put fully loaded all of that resource into a scrum. The challenge you've got with that is it's not scalable without creating an army of agency people that can then man-to-man mark us. So... We're then looking at, do, you know, do you have a planner that works across multiple scrums? So rather than being embedded and aligned totally to one, and where does, from an agency perspective, waterfall kick in? Because you can have creative resource to a point in the scrum, but then if you're looking at, you know, the templating and the productionizing of some of the from a supply chain perspective, there is a point where it's more efficient to have that back end running across all the scrums. So we're still looking at how we evolve and how do we keep it simple for the agencies? Because, you know, we've exploded in terms of number of scrums, number of cross-work functional teams, people who are empowered to go do work. That then just creates a massive headache for our agency. So I definitely I don't think we've cracked it, but you know, internally we've made massive progress because we've got full transparency. We know exactly what we're doing, in what two weeks it's going to get delivered and we can then move money and resources, people, and cash really quickly across the priorities. So what does it mean to have an agile workflow? Agile
1: is an iterative approach to project management, typically in software development that helps teams deliver value faster and with fewer headaches. Instead of betting everything on a big bang launch, an agile team delivers work in small, but consumable increments most commonly two weeks in length. Requirements, plans, and results are evaluated continuously, so teams have a natural mechanism for responding to change quickly. To do this in marketing, even within a big bank, a few cultural components are required. This includes flatter organizational hierarchies, a culture of open communication, and establishing cross-functional teams. What's especially interesting about what Margaret has done at NatWest is that she's done it in a highly regulated industry that usually has legal and compliance issues that no one would describe as quick. You gave an example of what is exempt from this, saying like, we're a big bank, we can't work in this way. What's an example of, let's say an OKR that comes down, that filters all the way down, that's part of these sprints and these 12-week planning cycles? What's an example of that that some of you would be working on?
0: If I look at retail banking, we want to drive primacy, so to be the number one bank of use with our customers, because a lot of customers are multi-banked. So we'd have a primacy target, which had been set by the business. we then go, okay, what are what are all the ways in which marketing can support primacy, and therefore, what's our contribution to that in a cycle? So we might run five or six test and learns to look at how do we get customers to, you know, in deepen engagement with us over the competition. Do you want to be the primary bank?
1: You might have five banks, but we're number one. So you want to deepen the relationship. And then when you say test and learns during the cycle... One thing that's different is that when you start talking about testing and learning, there's a little bit of a different comfort level you have to have with failure that sometimes people overlook. Meaning if you go in and you're like more of a traditional conservative maybe approach, you'd be like, okay, we need to hit 90% of our stuff needs to be successful. We're successful people. We're a successful bank. We're a successful marketing team. Go be successful. But then you shift to this test and learn, which is something that we love. In fact, our agency, TOP, it's an acronym. It stands for Test, Optimize, and Perform. So you're speaking our language, you're saying test and learn, but you have to actually be a little bit more comfortable with you're gonna run some experiments that bitterly and miserably fail. And you have to be okay with that. And, and also people want career advancement, they want other things you're sitting at the top of the food chain, they have to know you're okay with that to fail at something. If we've learned something funny, if we do it the right way, we don't want to waste money failing at something. But if it's advanced our thinking, that's good. So how do you get people to think like that? Because sometimes it's easier said than done. Yeah, let's do some experiments. Sounds great, but some are going to fail.
0: Yeah, and I think there's a few bits for me. I think one, you know, we don't talk about failure. You talk about every every experiment is a learning experiment. So either it did or didn't do what you were expecting. So I think this, how do you get really clear on the empirical question you try to answer? How do you then upfront decide what the metrics are that matter that you're going to measure? And actually then it's an outcome driven conversation. Did it do what you expected it to do? You then need to wrap around that process, reward, recognition, and actually the mechanics where people can talk about what happened, you know, did it turn out as expected or not expected? And you celebrate both good, bad and ugly. And you talk about good, bad and ugly because you know, the way I talk about it internally is all of that is a learning opportunity. And actually by not sharing it, you're doing your colleagues a disservice because you're, you're not giving them the benefit of your wisdom and your experience on things that like you've Tested, so you know we talk a lot about experimentation. How do we? And we're looking now at metrics, which is number of experiments run. You know what was our success rate? What was our you know learning from it? How do we archive that? How do you actually make that searchable for the, the, the department? Because. We're running multiple teams who are serving. We've basically got three and three in the business. Those teams are aligned to the p We want to test and, and scale insight and learning quickly for when it's going well. So how do you serve that up and create the forums and the mechanics for people to do it? But you're right, culturally, you need to get very comfortable with it could go as right as it can go as wrong. And actually, that's fine.
1: The analogy I'd use is almost like if we were surfers. On any given wave, you might get up and you might be surfing and you might fall miserably or you do something else. And and usually, traditionally, you're like, okay, I want to get on the wave and I want to ride this wave and look at me and I'm in the curl of the wave and doing all these things. But you might fall. If we take this mindset, it's not like it's good or bad. It's just like, what did we learn? Like, what, how did the wave work? And what did we do? And what method did we use? And could we tweak that method? And it's neither good nor bad. Then we felt It's just what happened. And you can't really get mad at the wave. The wave is just the wave. The wave is just what exists in the world. So you just got to go with it and learn about it. I'm trying to sort of say, you almost have to be a little bit dispassionate and say, we're scientists running experiments and to understand the world better. And as long as we're advancing, getting closer to that understanding, that's going to pay off. And any given experiment, that's okay, because we have this bigger goal in mind that we're trying to get
0: to. Totally agree. And I do think a lot of it is mindset, but you need a mindset, which is a learning mindset. You need a curiosity and you need to basically, you know, be constantly looking at how can we improve it? How do we do it better? And not get wedded necessarily to the outcome. Because historically what I've seen is people become very, Yeah, once you start talking about pilots and it's hard to get rid of stuff that isn't working. So actually you need to be dispassionate because that then allows you to be much more scientific. I've got PhD in laser chemistry, so maybe that's why I like it so much.
1: (laughs) If you enjoy this show, you'll love Top CEO. Top CEO is a business school case study telling the story behind the story and what you can learn from it from those who have faced the fire and come out the other side. That was the challenge the team was faced. 25% of it was gone. I found myself $282,000 in debt. How will you navigate through these trials and transform them into opportunities for growth and success? How do you build back up the business and get out of debt? Can't get anything in. Nobody can come to work, right, in any of our factory, in any of the factories.
0: This is Top
1: CEO. Available wherever you get your podcasts. And how does that relate to this notion of planning for uncertainty? It that sounds like a contradiction in terms that you could plan for uncertainty. But is it just because things are less set in stone, you're more flexible? Is that it, do or does it do anything else for how you deal with uncertainty, uncertain times, that word unprecedented that we were speaking about?
0: Yeah, I think what experimentation does is almost de-risk. It makes it more certain your probability for success. So when you're thinking about particularly new areas, new platforms, you know, do we play in the metaverse? Do we not play in the metaverse? What do we do on TikTok? Does TikTok work for us as a regulated brand? How can we make an impact in that space? How do we, you know, play around with media mix or channels or segments? So I think it actually de-risks before you go large with something. And I think. So for me, it actually allows you to push into new territories. And the challenge I think in marketing is how do you protect that spend? Because actually, what you like to drive ultimately is certainty. And so that's what the business wants, that's how you forecast performance, that's how ultimately we go to the market and say, this is the outcome we're going to drive. So in some ways, for me, experimentation is a de-risking mechanic to say, If you start going big on something, you're more certain that it's going to work and it allows you to do it. I think building in the flexibilities are slightly different. Building flexibility, I think is slightly different. I think it's about how do you give yourself optionality as you lay down your plan so you can turn off and turn on as things move quickly. Markets, if you think of where we are this year, you know, credit card market is going mental, mortgage market is falling because everyone's really worried about interest rates and affordability. You're seeing some big swings in, are people investing? Are they not investing? It depends on what's going on in the macro environment. We have to be able to respond to that and we can't be too set in, you know, this is the commercial outcome you're necessarily going to get because the market demand may not be there or it may massively be there when you need to capitalise on it.
1: Ironically, by planning for uncertainty, we get more certainty which we need as a business to scale and we need predictable things that you put in X, you get out Y, Y is bigger than X. And so our business can grow.
0: Correct. And it allows you, I think, to flex when things move quick. You know, you've got to be, you've got to be close to what's going on externally. And if you've got the mechanics, I don't know, in the US, but you're still talking two months sign off for a a, media deadline in the UK for TV. Two months, a lot happens in two months in a given. You know, the world can fall very quickly or rise very quickly, depending on what's going on in the macro.
1: Does anyone say, Margaret, you're crazy to do this in financial services? The reason I ask is because you have a background in consumer products. You bring that sensibility as well. You've done things, launched, Dove deodorant across Europe and you were at Unilever earlier in your career as well. So I would expect this out of a maybe a consumer CPG company or something like that, but less so out of a big regulated bank. So does anyone ever say it's crazy to try this within a big regulated organization or no? You have the golden touch, ample amounts of charm. You're able to get this through, no problem.
0: Not so far. I mean, I must admit, we've just I've always said seek forgiveness, not permission. So keep going until somebody tells me that I am totally bonkers. But it's generally working. I mean for us and again, if you spoke to the team, they would say it's, uh, it's working. I mean, we see it. We're more interlocked with the business than we've ever been before. So our priorities are their priorities, which is right. We are working and breaking down silos across the function and cross-functionally like we've never done before. So, you know, actually we feel, I've always said, success for me at the end of the year is, do my team get seen by the business partners as in their team? Are they invited to their Christmas party? Because if they are, then they're seen as part of the business, not marketing on the side. And, you know, we're seen as being in partnership with the business and be there to help and support them and grow their business which you know that's success because we're not we're not there to market for the sake of marketing we're there ultimately to you know help grow our business help customers understand the great products and services we sell and to drive value into the P&L in the right way with all the regulatory requirements wrapped around it but you know actually we're doing a better job of that than ever before and that's built our internal trust internal reputation, which then means that, you know, you get more money and therefore you can drive faster, better, you know, more effective growth.
1: Information silos occur when different departments or teams work in isolation, limiting knowledge sharing and collaboration. But what should you do to break down these barriers? You can start by inspiring teams to openly share their goals, progress and challenges with others. This transparency reveals opportunities for collaboration and sparks innovation across the organization. Next, embrace collaborative tools. Invest in cutting edge platforms that simplify communication and knowledge sharing among teams. Think project management software, instant messaging apps and more to bridge the gaps and keep everyone connected. Finally, when information flows, celebrate it. The best way to get people excited about working with others outside their immediate team is to make them feel great about doing it. Banking has become more commoditized in recent years where banks are generally offering the same types of things. How do you think about that differently from consumer products, when you're doing things like a brand like Dove, what are the factors that you have to think about in your marketing to make the whole thing work that's different than on the consumer product side?
0: I mean, I think the two biggest things between service and consumer goods is in a service industry. Your brand is absolutely everything you do. And that is it's the visit to the website, it's the letter you send, it's the call that you make as a outbound or inbound if you're complaining, it's the visit to the branch. So you have to, in marketing, understand the ecosystem way more. I mean, way more, because actually in packaged goods, it's the retailer that owns the relationship with the customer, unless you've got direct-to-consumer, which you know most of the big branded players don't have much of a direct-to-consumer business, so you need to translating your brand proposition into customer experience principles, into design principles. So as those journey leads build out the design and the experience, you're looking at how do you build differentiation? What's on the backlog that's going to make you different? What are you fixing for customers? How are you removing pain points? So one end. At the other end, I think the data that we have at our fingertips You know, we know where our customers live. You know what products and services they've got with us. You can see their behavior. You can see them authenticate to come on the site. You know what products and services they haven't got. And we should be able to predict what they most likely will be wanting to take next and serve that up and help them on the journey to get to where they need to get to. So the power of insight, data, personalization, is a different league versus what you can do in consumer goods. So, yeah, you know, as a marketer, you need to be more technical. I, I believe in a service provision. You need to be. More, I mean, my my best friend is the chief digital officer, who's running data and analytics and thinking about you know how do we get the platforms talking to each other? How do you get the martech lined up? How do I drive performance measurement? Because we own the channels. You know, if you think of you know, in life is I can see what my customers are doing, what they're spending their money on, and I can append with all sorts of data that says, you know, they like music or they go on holiday or, you know, they like buying Jimmy Shoe shoes and therefore the rewards you can wrap around at the experiences you can wrap around uh, are second to none. So I think it's a very different experience working in the service industry and of banking, you know, I'd argue actually banks have got way more opportunity to differentiate. Shame on us if we don't, because we have the insight, we've got the data, we can see what customers are doing, and we play a pretty important role in their lives. Yeah, you know, a, a life without money is a hard life, and actually we can really help people achieve their goals faster, better, in a way that, you know, you can't achieve when you're selling deodorant.
1: When you think of consumer insight team, that kind of model, you actually go to CPG, right? They have big teams, big spends. And and what you're suggesting is they have to do all of that because they don't own the relationship, the retailer does. So they put all this infrastructure, try to do it. And yet in other types of industries where you do own the relationship, and in fact, in banking where you have, you own not only the relationship, but a lot of private information of how people are interacting in the functions of money, something as basic as that, do more industries like banking need to really focus on insights, do you think? Do you think it is not commensurate with the opportunity there?
0: Yeah, I mean, I still think you've got, I mean, you think of one of the challenges though in banking is it's a series of products. So the legacy of banking is it would either be a, a series of products on different tech stacks or businesses that have been come to get through acquisition. or So the biggest issue in legacy service businesses is single customer view, taking the power of all of that data to drive better action and really use insight into action. So, you know, it's almost shame on banking if we don't get it right, but there's a lot of work to do to get it right because you've got to tie all those data sources together. You know, if I look, so my energy, just to give you a small example, When I worked in the energy business, the whole industry was designed around the meter on the wall, the gas meter and the electricity meter because the meter never moved house, whereas customers move houses. So actually you had to aggregate the gas and electricity meter data to get a customer view because in the system it was two separate things. And so a lot of businesses, big big complex businesses like ours, have a lot of back-end work to do. You know, I could have a retail customer who's also a wealth customer who's also running his own business or her own business. And in today's system, there would be three different customers. We have to be able to then bring all that together to say, I see you, I see your true value, I see all of your relationships with us. And therefore I can tailor what I do to be more effective and support you in in more ways than ever before. But the back-end system... It's got to facilitate that and the data is pretty powerful, but you still need insight. You still need to understand human behavior and how to change behavior and and serve the right products.
1: And certainly it's a big job to do that for the whole bank. but also even just within marketing. Sometimes we don't know what's working in digital and then someone walked in a branch and we're connecting those two things together and we can sort of see their whole experience. To your point about experience, I know you've, spoken about before how you can run the greatest ad in the world. That's like the perfect positioning and it's white space from your competitors and it's powerful. And gosh, one of those ads where you're like shedding a tear, that's such a beautiful thing. And you know, and and bank someone's playing that space, right? Because you're helping enable these life goals and milestones and it's amazing. And everyone, and you go win a can lions and you go all this, but then the person who sees that calls up a bank, goes in the branch and doesn't have an experience that resembles that at all. And so suddenly it does nothing if you won an award, but it didn't actually accomplish anything. So, so talk about how you think about the holistic nature of
0: experience. Yeah. I mean, that is, you've got to, as a marketeer, I think you've got to be worrying about do your journeys work? You know, what happens if I send someone to the website and the, the sign page is not ready or someone goes in and asks the branch about a particular proposition we've been advertising and we haven't briefed the branch staff and you know it it doesn't work unless it all works. So your ecosystem, you need to constantly understand where it's broken, where are the pain points, what's the quality of our service, are we in a position to advertise that product because if the experience isn't good enough there's absolutely no point at me filling the funnel at the top from an acquisition perspective and then getting 90% dropout so actually, I think as a marketer, you need to be really understanding you know, what experiences are being created and then making sure that they work before you spend a penny. And I've been in conversations before where I've said, we're not advertising because that journey is not good enough. And that's, I think we need to be working hand in hand with our products and journey teams. Because there is no point uh, spending money. Not only is it a waste of money, but it's a shocking customer experience. And then they'll go and tell 10 friends. And then before you know it, you've got a problem where they say, well, that bank's not very good or that energy company's not very good. Because actually what they say on TV is a load of old rubbish. And then when I experience it, it doesn't deliver up to expectation.
1: If you were going to create The Margaret Jobling School of Marketing for the next generation, you're going to create this new curriculum. We're going to launch it in this era of unprecedented things and uncertainty and all that. Everything we've talked about, what would you put in that curriculum to sort of train the next generation that might be different or surprising or or things like that? How would you approach it if you were going to just re-educate marketing, given the new world order that we live in now?
0: What would I put in? I mean, if I think of the core elements of what we need to do, they haven't changed, but... Understand your consumer, really understand your consumer and don't ever think that you're them because that's when you really are doomed. And when I mean understand them, understand your brand in the context of their life, understand where they spend their time, how they consume energy, information, you know, influence. Understand therefore the channel mix and how to target and and then measurement. We have to be able to articulate return on investment and sadly... There's not enough marketeers do it well. So to be credible, you have to speak the language of the business. And I think if you can't speak the language of the business, you can't justify your value creation. You can't demonstrate that what we do is adding value to the business. You are the colouring in department. So I don't think what you need to do as a marketeer has changed. I think how it manifests itself in the complexity of today's world you need to understand the MarTech stack. You need to understand how measurement works and full funnel attribution. You need to be as interested in the conversion as a website as the get them to the first, you know, the last click. Because if you're not in that detail, then actually the devil is always in the detail. And I've seen too many marketeers when it lands on the website say, my work here is done. Well, no, if the journey's broken, it's not going to convert and you're not going to get the sale. So you need to care about that. So I think the core skills haven't changed, just the the knowledge, the experience, the commercial acumen, the technical acumen, but fundamentally the consumer understanding is where it starts. Do you know who you're trying to target, what they're motivated by, what role your brand plays in their life, and how to engage and drive emotional relevance with them is still the core of what we do.
1: And in an era of uncertainty and unprecedented things and unknown, you also have the time dimension. So maybe you understood your consumer yesterday. Do you still understand them today? And do you in fact, you in fact understand them tomorrow as well?
0: Absolutely true, absolutely. And back to, don't ever you think that you're them, because we are all doomed if you think you're the main the person that you're trying to talk to.
1: According to Margaret Jobling, a successful marketing strategy in today's complex and uncertain world, relies on a deep understanding of consumers, effective data utilization, and a focus on creating seamless customer journeys across all channels. But you've got to do this at lightning speed. So shorten your time horizon. Be more flexible. Take smaller bites. Sprint, then reset, then sprint again. You'll react more nimbly and break down information silos. And with each two-week sprint and 12-week planning session, you'll reinforce the culture for next time. What's the result? An organization with an experimental ethos that can plan for uncertainty. An organization ready for any unexpected marketing challenge that may come its way. For Top CMO, I'm
0: Ben Kaplan.